If you have your copy of God's Word, uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 27 through 32 this morning as we continue uh, our journey through the gospel according to Luke. Uh, sermon entitled today, Only Sinners Can Be Saved by God. If you remember the sermon title from last week, it was Only God Alone Can Save, and on the heels of that, Only Sinners Can Be Saved by God. Charles Spurgeon, uh, the great English Baptist preacher that many of you are familiar with, once said this, I have a great need for Christ, and I have a great Christ for my need. I have a great need for Christ, and I have a great Christ for my need. I'm afraid that modern man and many Christians that I would put into that category do not grasp how great a need they have for Christ. We live in an age of self-sufficiency. If there's ever an issue, we seek to remedy that issue on our own. Now, to a degree, there is a, there is a great trait. To, this is a great trait to have in many earthly matters. Some of you are tremendously self-sufficient when it comes to home repairs, when it comes to auto repairs, business matters, etc. I'm not that guy. I wish I was because it would save me a lot of money, right? However, when we get down to the roots of what really matters in life, namely our spiritual condition, self-sufficiency is where our need for Christ goes to die. In fact, the self-sufficient person has no need for Christ whatsoever as he is unable to recognize his own need. It is easy for us to look at those who are needy or those who have needs and somewhat put our noses up in the air thinking that we are not needy people. We will do whatever it takes to meet our own needs. But at the end of the day, we have a great need. We have a sin problem. We are incapable of remedying that sin problem on our own. In fact, there is absolutely nothing you nor I can do about that. You see, man's desire to be self-sufficient as it relates to God is not some new and novel concept that has just manifested over the, the last century. If we go back to the Garden of Eden, the fall of man was rooted in the desire to be self-sufficient, to be independent of God, to be like God. Now this, now, this many years later, the temptation for self-sufficiency, the same temptation that overcame Adam and Eve, is the very same temptation that so many of us succumb to each day. In our desire for self-sufficiency, we do not see our great need for Christ, and we do not see a great Christ for our need. We may confess that we see a great need for Christ in salvation, because we may confess that we cannot save ourselves, and so we see Christ as the remedy for that sin. But outside of our get-out-of-hell-free card, we do not necessarily see our great need for Christ each and every day of our lives. In our self-sufficiency, we often rely on our religious practices, our good works, our dedication to the rules, etc. 
as a remedy to our sin problem. And we think to ourselves, and we're all prone to do this, well, I've checked all the boxes. I've done everything I've been told. I've fulfilled my obligations. God and I must be on really good terms. I've been to church four times this month. We rely upon our own efforts to bridge the gap between us and God. And in this, the issue is that we're looking to ourselves to meet our great need instead of looking to Christ. What I want us to see today is, in fact, quite the opposite. We have a great need for Christ each and each day of our lives, and if we fail to see this great need, then we fail to see Christ. I can tell you this, God does not tell us to be self-sufficient when it comes to our great need. He doesn't tell us that at all. God also does not tell us to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps to to remedy that need. God tells us to recognize this great need. And as we recognize this great need, then look to Christ as the only remedy for that need. You see, religion is not the answer to our great need for Christ. As we will see, it is repentance and faith resulting in a life that is dedicated to Christ above all else. And until we come to an end of ourselves, until we stop looking at our own good merits, our own works, and our own self-righteousness, we will be unable to see the true Christ and appreciate who He is and what He has done for us. But when we realize that we are in great danger because of our sin and our rebellion, recognizing our inability to escape that danger on our own and setting aside our self-sufficiency, our self-righteousness, then we will see, church, we will see the beauty of Christ and the reality that He has come to us to provide the remedy for our sin-sick lives. Then... We will leave everything and follow Him. Why? Because only sinners can be saved by God. God doesn't save any righteous people. We see that very clearly today. Only sinners can be saved by God. I pray that as we walk through this text, we will receive a good dose of reality. That we will come to the end of ourselves and we will treasure Christ for drawing near to us. Because we were unable and incapable of drawing near to Him. And may the Lord bless the preaching of His Word, giving us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive. If you're able, would you stand as we read Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. Luke chapter 5, 27 through 32, the Word of God reads, After this, he, he being Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Would you pray with me? God, you've given us a wonderful blessing in your word. God, you've shown us through your inspired word, Jesus, 
And so God, as we spend our time just in these few verses this morning, show us Jesus. We want to know Jesus. We want to treasure Jesus. We want to follow Jesus. We want to worship Jesus. And we want to rejoice in Jesus. Our Savior, our Lord, our King. May we in our individual lives lift high Christ and in the life of this church, lift high Jesus above all else, leaving everything and following Him. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So one of the reasons I love the Gospels is that they provide for us a well-rounded perspective of who Jesus is. You see, it's easy for us, you and I, and it's easy for all of us, it's just a tendency that we have to pick and choose which Jesus we want to follow. It's easy for us to develop our own personal Jesus, someone to hear your prayers, someone who cares. May pick up on that line? Johnny Cash? No? All right. Think about this with me for a moment. If you love the compassion and mercy of Jesus, which we all do, but if you just focus on the compassion and mercy of Jesus and nothing else, then you may construct a Jesus that is nothing but compassionate and merciful, a Jesus who doesn't address sin, or a Jesus who excuses or condones certain sinful behavior lest he upset someone. If you love the holiness and the righteousness of Jesus, which we all love, don't get me wrong, but if you only focus on that aspect of who Jesus is, you may construct a Jesus who is legalistic, holding to a set of principles that must be strictly followed with no room for grace at all. A pharisaical Jesus, maybe. So what I'm saying is that we must be very careful to take the whole picture of Jesus from the Gospels in order to develop a fully formed picture of who we are and who He actually is, lest we leave ourselves with a personal interpretation of Jesus and potentially missing Jesus altogether. And so up to this point, we've seen and we're developing this understanding, this idea of who Jesus is, why Jesus came. And as we continue our journey through Luke's gospel, that will continue to be solidified, giving us a good, well-rounded picture of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. And so as this text opens, we encounter something that might appear very similar to us. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting in a tax booth, and he said, follow me, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Now, if we remember a few passages back, Jesus called his first disciples. He called Simon Peter, he called James, and he called John. Now, in a very similar way, Jesus is calling another disciple, yielding the same result, albeit there is no accompanying physical miracle, but Jesus calls his next disciple. Disciple. And so with that being said, I want to make my first observation from this text this morning. The compassionate heart of Jesus. The compassionate heart of Jesus. The passage picks up with Jesus continuing on His ministry journey, moving on from the bold declaration that He is God, possessing the power to forgive sins, the Son of Man, followed up by the healing of the paralytic. And now as Jesus is walking, He finds Himself passing a tax booth. Now, at this particular tax booth is a man named Levi. Now, let me make a quick connection really quick, really, really quickly. 
lest we be confused. Levi and Matthew are names used for the same person. So if you're going through your mind and you're thinking about disciples and you go, where does Levi fit into this? Levi and Matthew are the same person. Those names are synonymous. This story is clearly the same as Matthew's in Matthew 9, 9 through 13. And so first century Jews often had two names, usually one in Hebrew or Aramaic and the other in Greek or Latin. And so when we say Levi, I'm using Levi because that's what Luke gives us in this text, we're talking about Matthew, all right? The same person, Levi and Matthew. It's like maybe a first name and a middle name. I don't know, whatever. But as Jesus comes across Levi, he looks at Levi sitting at this tax booth, and he calls him to follow him. And in similar terminology that we've already seen, immediately, just as it was with Simon Peter, just as it was with James, and just as it was with John, Levi left everything and followed Jesus. Once more, this is a demonstration of the powerful work of Christ calling His people to Himself. When He effectually calls someone to follow Him, they do not hesitate. They will, and they do, follow Him. Now, I think it's important for us to pause for just a moment and consider the nature of this call and Levi's response in following Jesus. Levi follows Jesus without hesitation without trying to put his ducks in a row or thinking about any type of cost that he might endure. He's leaving his job. He doesn't think about loss of job, loss of income, loss of home, etc. Levi leaves everything, we're told, to follow Jesus. He doesn't ask what this might mean. He doesn't count the cost. He doesn't do any of the things. Luke says immediately he followed Jesus. Now, this is not some deeper Christian commitment to Jesus. It'd be easy for us to look at this passage and go, well, Jesus is calling his disciples. He's not, I'm not one of the 12 disciples. He doesn't call me to do the same thing. He doesn't ask of me the same thing to follow him no matter the cause. Jesus wouldn't ask me that. I'm just a normal person with a normal family and a normal job and a normal place living a normal life. But this call is not something above any other call of a Christian. This is the normal, everyday response for the Christian. You see, in our American church culture, for some reason, we have dwindled the Christian life down to a quick, one-time response that doesn't cost us anything. We think that salvation is a once-for-all event, never to be repeated. We did the thing there, and we don't have to do anything for the rest of our lives. We did what was asked of us. We did what we were told. We are good. Once saved, always saved. I said my prayer. I punched my card. Hallelujah. I'm good to go. Now, don't get me wrong. We affirm the perseverance of the saints wholeheartedly. Once truly saved, always saved. And we bless God for that reality. However, I think that we cheapen grace to think that once we complete this one task, once we have said yes to Jesus, then we're good to go and we can say, I have decided to follow Jesus. However, the Christian life was not thought of of as a once-for-all event never to be repeated. As is evidenced by Luke's use of the imperfect tense, literally translated, Levi begins to follow Jesus. He begins to follow Jesus. He didn't make the decision to follow Jesus and then leave it there. He begins to follow Jesus. 
This same emphasis appears in 9, Luke 9, 23, where taking up the cross is something done daily. And where one is called to continually follow Jesus. The call to follow Jesus was not understood by Luke as a call to half-hearted loyalty, but as involving a continual, everyday following of Jesus. Let's not cheapen grace, church. Let's not cheapen grace by thinking that our Christian life consists of one moment when we repented and believed in Christ. But let us do what Christ commands us to do and exactly what we see Levi do and commit to following Him every day. Unfortunately, too many people have been convinced that they can have Jesus as Savior and not as Lord, but that is old school church lingo that will lead you straight to hell. That is the devil's theology. Having Christ as Savior and Lord means continually following Jesus. They are never separated in the Scriptures. And they will not be separated. And so in calling Levi and the events that follow, Jesus demonstrates his compassionate heart towards sinners. What was it about Levi that warranted Jesus' grace and compassion? Surely there was something within him. Surely there was something within Levi that Jesus saw and said, He is worthy of my love. He is worthy of my calling. He is worthy of my affection. Absolutely not. Levi was among the worst of the worst of his day. Tax collectors were not the most popular people among the Jews. In fact, tax collectors were among the most hated people in the Jewish society. In those days, for a faithful Jew, it would be hard to imagine a more loathsome or hated person than a tax collector. And I know, uh, I know the TV series paints Levi out to be not that bad of a guy and trying to figure this out, but tax collectors were the worst of the worst. Sinners and tax collectors were virtually synonymous terms used together as the Jewish people believed that the worst sin was the sin of collaboration with the Romans who so severely oppressed them. Tax collectors were typically Jews who were working for the Roman government, collecting the very taxes from their fellow countrymen that served to support the forces that occupied their land. They were infamous for their willingness to collect more than they had, more than they had a right to, for the purpose of lining their own pockets, making themselves wealthier. And the Roman authorities didn't mind this. Why didn't they mind? As long as they're getting theirs, they don't care what you do. Surely these were the kinds of people that the Messiah would oppose, that Messiah would punish when He arrived. But this isn't the case at all. In fact, it's quite the opposite. This is the kind of person Jesus went to and the kind of person that Jesus said, follow me. The treacherous sinner, the one hated by society, He embraced them in His grace when everyone else cast them aside. This is how someone becomes a Christian church. They're going about their business, the business of their lives, and by by the wonder of God's grace, they are brought to encounter Jesus. And then they hear this beckoning call, the call of Jesus, lay down everything and follow me. It's the call of the Christian. It's the call that so many of us have heard in our own lives. The calling of Christ. 
Brothers and sisters, I want to tell you this. Don't miss this. Do not miss this. Allow this passage to gas up the tanks of your prayers for the conversion of the non-Christians in your lives. If you were to ask the people of Israel to write down a list of the top 500 kinds of people who would be primed and ready to be made right with God, tax tax collectors wouldn't even make the list. But these are the very ones that Jesus goes to. These are the very ones who Christ embraces with His compassionate hearts. These are the ones that Jesus saves. Who are the people in our lives, in our neighborhoods, in our spheres of influence that we might have already written off? Well, they're just not the spiritual type. There's no way that they're going to trust in Christ. I've prayed for them for years. I've heard them slander the name of Jesus. I've heard them dismiss the things of God. I've, heard, I've seen them walk the other way when I've tried to talk to them. Let this encourage you to know that Jesus can do the work. The tax collectors aren't the religious type. The tax collectors don't look the part. The tax collectors don't speak the same language. They don't watch the same TV shows. They don't listen to the same music. They don't live in the same houses. They're the social outcasts. They're hated by their own people. They're thieves. Yet we see the compassionate heart of Christ and His gentle embrace because they are the ones who know and know it well that they have no righteousness of their own. Church, let us be careful that we do not disqualify others from the possibility of conversion to Christianity because we've determined them to be, be, to be beyond reach or because we think they must meet a certain set of standards before this can be possible. It's dangerous and wrong. Let us also be careful as we read this and we see Jesus going and Jesus feasting with tax collectors and sinners to be aware that for some of us, We've been followers of Jesus. We've been Christians for many years. And perhaps this passage has started to show you that you aren't quite aware of your great need for Jesus as you once were. Maybe in your heart now you need to say, Lord, I want to sit back at the table. I want to be moved by You. Your Word has grown cold to me. Warm it and impress Your joy and gladness upon my heart. Jesus is glad to give new birth to those who need Him and glad to quicken the hearts of those who have grown cold. He has a heart of compassion towards those who don't deserve compassion. All of us. Second observation. The self-sufficiency and self-righteousness of the Pharisees. Look at 29 and 30. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now we continue to see the compassionate heart of Christ on full display in typical Jesus fashion. I love this. Levi's born again. He responds to the effectual call of Jesus by leaving everything that he has and following after him. Yet for Levi, it's just not enough to follow Jesus and have my own personal me and Jesus type of thing. Levi wants everyone else to know, meet, and follow Jesus. 
And so what is Levi's natural response? It's like, man, I need my friends, I need my co-workers to meet this guy, the Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm going to throw this big party, this feast for Jesus. And let us not forget, Levi is perfectly capable of this because he was a part of the lucrative business of tax collecting. And so he was loaded, right? He had plenty of money to throw this feast. And as the story progresses, not only... Has Jesus called the worst of the worst to follow him? But he is in Levi's home with a whole group of the worst of the worst sharing a meal. Now, let me say this. All tax collectors in our current modern-day society are not the worst of the worst people. That's important to note. We all probably know some who work for the IRS, and they're good, wholesome people, some of them, that we love dearly, right? And so I'm not lumping in everybody, particularly one of our beloved that, that serves here with us. I told her beforehand, I was like, I just want you to pray up before uh, the passage. I'm not talking about you at all, all right? Now, as I mentioned last week, before we hammer the Pharisees, let's give them the benefit of the doubt for a moment. It's easy for us, a New Testament people, to view the Pharisees as the bad guys every time we come into contact with them, every time we encounter them. Now, there is some truth to this statement. They are indeed pretty much the bad guys every time we encounter them. But let's consider the dynamics of what is taking place and maybe give them the benefit of the doubt. Pharisees did not view themselves as the bad guys. They viewed themselves as the complete opposite. They viewed themselves as the good guys. They were deeply concerned with keeping the rules, with religious devotion, and enforcing those rules in the lives of others. They were, in their eyes, the righteous ones. The ones who adhered to the law strictly and saw to it that other people adhered to the law. They are the righteous ones. They're the good church-going people. They're the ones who don't drink, don't chew, and don't go out with girls that do. That's who they are. Were you all taught that as a child? Just me? Yeah, Brian? Good. Their works and their righteousness is a badge of honor that they would wear. And the very thought of entering into the home of a wretched tax collector, the very thought of entering into the home of a sinner such as this was perhaps a formal breach of purity. And certainly no respectable religious leader would mix socially with such people. Surely not. And in first century and in this culture, much like many cultures still today, sharing a meal was an important mark of social identification. And so before Jesus even speaks to these objections, to these questions raised by the Pharisees, before Jesus even speaks of what is happening, His actions are screaming very loudly. Who He is, who He came to, what He's doing. And so the Pharisees start grumbling and they ask Jesus' disciples, the first mention of the word disciples in Luke's Gospel, He starts asking the disciples, they start asking, how could Jesus do such a thing as this? Who is this Jesus that would do such a thing as to share a meal with the worst of the worst? He is the one who's been teaching about God, elaborating on the things of God, and utilizing some sort of supernatural power that the Pharisees are still trying to figure out. Yet here He is, reclining at table with the worst of the worst. What self-respecting religious man or religious teacher would do such a thing? Well, church, true Christianity has always broken down economic, social, ethnic, and racial barriers for where Christ is truly present. 
people will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God, Luke tells us in chapter 13. You see, in their self-sufficiency, the Pharisees did not see a need for Jesus. Their righteousness, their remedy to the greatest problem in history, the sin problem that created a barrier between them and God, their remedy was found in their own self-sufficiency, in their own self-righteousness. They did not see their need for Christ because they perceived that they were meeting their need in and of themselves. I mean, they went to church. They read the Bible regularly. They kept their attendance records. They busied themselves with the perceivable things of God. They did all the things while others were committing sin, while others were laying out, while others were collecting taxes. Surely, surely when Messiah shows up, He's coming for the Pharisees. He's coming for them because they were more righteous than these others. They were in no need for Christ. Church, let's not be mistaken here. Jesus is only for those who know they need Him. He's only for those who know they need Him. These observers can't reason or understand why Jesus would eat and drink with tax collectors. How could this gap be bridged between them and Him? Well, we've seen Jesus' makeup, we've seen His heart, we've seen His willingness, we've seen His capability, His gladness at redeeming. But what we need to understand is that like water bouncing off a hardened sponge, we will not see this Jesus if we are so full of ourselves that we don't see our need for Jesus. You see, this is the problem with American Christianity today. We are so full of ourselves that we do not see a need for Jesus. We're so full of ourselves in thinking that we know what is best for us. We know what is best for Christians. We know what is best for the church. We know what is best in the worship hour. We know what is best for our families. We know what is best for our jobs. We know what is best for so many different aspects of our lives because we're good people, we're self-respecting people, we're honest people, we're hardworking people, and we risk the danger of being so full of ourselves that there's no room for Jesus. In fact, it's easy for us to miss Jesus altogether because of this. Self-sufficient. Even our religious devotion can be so engulfed with self-righteousness that we do not see our own need for Jesus. You can do all the right things and your hope be in all the right things, but not in Jesus. Do you know what the American church and what Christians need? It doesn't need a church growth manual. It doesn't need more people in the seats. It doesn't need a 10-step program to reach the community. The American church and Christians need more Jesus. They need more recognition of their own need for Christ. And they need to seek Christ more to meet that need. I can give you all the self-help, I can give you all the pragmatism, I can give you all the next steps that you want, but if I do not give you Jesus, I've given you nothing of value. Nothing. Guys, we can put seats in all these, we can put people in all these seats. We really can. But if we do not give Jesus, we've wasted your time 
and my time. We need more of Jesus. In fact, if I give you anything other than Jesus, I've hurt you more than I've helped you. And that goes for all under the heading of Christianity. What Jesus is showing us to be aware of, what what Jesus is showing us is to be aware of our hearts being hardened to the point that we can't receive the nourishing living waters. How does this happen? Well, it happens when we refuse to see our need for Him. We feel like we've had the need met. We feel like we're in a good place. We feel like we've done those things. And yet we miss our continual need for Jesus. We are often so prideful that we put more faith in ourselves, more faith in our own strength, more faith in pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, more faith in fixing our issues and solving our problems that we refuse to see our need for Jesus. It's it's true. We can be so enamored by our own ability to please God and be welcomed into His kingdom through our works that we miss our need for Jesus. We can refuse to understand ourselves and we can easily become modern-day self-righteous Pharisees. Church, we are in great need of Jesus, not only in the moment that we're saved, but each second of every day. So the question before us really this morning is, do you see your need for Christ or are you leaning on your own self-sufficiency to remedy your great need? Because it won't work. Third observation. Sinners recognize their need for Christ and are transformed. Look at what Jesus says to the Pharisees in 31 and 32. And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, we need to walk through this very carefully. Yet again, as has been the case up to this point, we must carefully read this passage. Because it is in vogue to say, well, I don't want to be a Pharisee. I don't want to be legalistic towards others. It's in vogue to not want to be Pharisaical while actually making ourselves Pharisaical. You see, the Pharisee in this passage is the one who refuses to see their need for him. It's the one who refuses to see their sin and to see and to repent. And so you can cast aside the rules and the the legalistic tendencies of Christianity and go, well, I don't want to be that guy to where I, I, I hammer down so hard on what I have to do and have to do and have to do and not do. And you can go all the way over here and not see your need for Jesus. Therefore, basking in your sin, refusing to see your own sin and repent. It's that pendulum of, of, I don't want to be on this side because I don't want to be pharisaical. Christianity is not a list of to-dos and to-not-dos. This is not how I find my righteousness. And so you swing all the way over here to where you begin to abuse grace. And in a sense, you're being pharisaical. We're being pharisaical in that moment because we're refusing to see our need for Jesus in that moment. And so the righteous here, Jesus says, I haven't come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. The righteous here should be understood as those who falsely think themselves righteous using any other criteria other than Christ as their measuring stick. And so Jesus says He has come to call sinners to repentance. And so the mindset that refuses to see one's need and acknowledge one's desperate need for Christ, that is the one who is pharisaical. You see, in our eyes, when we say Pharisee, we go rules, 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 rules. 
But in fact, the Pharisee is the one who refuses to see their need for Christ. And repentance here corresponds to and is thus another way of expressing leaving all and following Jesus that we saw in 28. God gives us eyes to see our needs. He gives us self-awareness to see that the only qualification to see Jesus is to understand our need for Him. You know, we all know people who could be half dead with illness and still refuse to go to the doctor, couldn't we? They refuse to see their need. That might be some of you. And then you only go because your spouse tells you, hey, you need to go to the doctor. All right, whatever. But let us be careful lest we refuse to see our own sickness and we in turn refuse to go to the physician. In a culture that is sin-stricken at what seems to be an ever-increasing rate, let us not be a people who are so desensitized towards sin in the culture that we become desensitized to our own sin, not recognizing our own need to go to Christ. We may say, well, I'm not a drug addict. I'm not a drunk. I don't cheat on my wife. I'm not a a fornicator. I lie sometimes, but that's not bad. I view pornography sometimes, but that's not so bad. I don't read the Bible, but I go to church and the preacher tells me about it. I lie in my business sometimes, but at least I've never killed anyone. And on and on the list goes. Let us not refuse to see our own sickness and in turn not seek out the great physician. Easy to do. But let's not fall into the devil's trap. Through the Spirit's work within us, we're able to see our need for Christ. All glory be to Christ. It is all a work of Christ. Apart from this work on our own, we cannot and will not ever see this need. So a fitting prayer from this passage, church, might be this. Lord, help me to see my great need for You. Help me to see that the cross was not a byproduct of Your life, but was the point of Your coming because I needed it due to my sin-drenched sickness. Let me see the glory of what Christ did for me on the cross in taking Your punishment on Himself that should have gone to me and let me bask in the infinite grace that has been shown to me as I see my great need for Him. And help me, Lord. Help me to run into the light of the Gospel. Help me to not stay back in the shadows. And help me, O God, to know that as I run into the light of the Gospel, that Jesus desires to meet me. That Jesus is capable to meet me. And that Jesus is glad to meet me. Jesus' mission was to call sinners to repentance. The Great Commission is a call to preach in Jesus' name repentance and forgiveness of sins to all the world. Faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. Jesus calls us to repent of our sins, to trust Him as Savior and Lord and receive His righteousness in exchange for our unrighteousness. The Pharisees were self-righteous. Their righteousness was a righteousness in and of themselves. And standing before a high and holy God, their righteousness, like our righteousness, is of filthy rags. It's worthless. It cannot save us. We can do all the right things. But when we turn from our sin, when we trust in Christ, we receive His righteousness. We receive Christ's righteousness in exchange for our worthless self-righteousness. Luke also reminds us that the call of Jesus was addressed to the outcast. Jesus came for sinners and He came for the lost. The gospel's for the poor, it's for the prisoners, it's for the blind, and it's for the oppressed, Luke has already told us. 
Those who falsely think they are healthy, those who falsely think they are righteous will reject Jesus' message. But since His message openly challenges and refutes the false assumption of well-being, the gospel cannot be ignored. C.S. Lewis once wrote this, Christianity tells people to repent and promises them forgiveness. It has nothing, as far as I know, to say to people who do not know they have done anything to repent of and who do not feel that they need any forgiveness. If you have no need of repentance, if you have no need of forgiveness, then you have no need of Christ. But that's nobody that's been born under the sun. Yet to those who see and acknowledge their own unrighteousness before God, the gospel offers forgiveness and blessing. Through Christ, we are made righteous. And a righteous person says with Spurgeon, and they believe this wholeheartedly, I have a great need for Christ, and I have a great Christ for my need. A righteous person says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. This morning, are you clinging to your own self-sufficiency? Or are you clinging to the cross? Because only sinners can be saved by God. Pray with me.